Hello, friends. In honor of the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, the National Constitution Center is launching a crowdfunding campaign. Every dollar you give to We the People will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match. We're currently at 533 donations from all 50 states in our glorious United States of America. We also have international donations from Switzerland, Israel, Canada, China, Germany, and Hungary. Our next goal is the halfway point of $117,000. So if you haven't pitched in yet, and if you value the urgently important practice of listening to arguments on all sides of constitutional debate so that you can think for yourself and make up your own minds, then please give any amount, $5 or $10 or more, to support We the People, because that's what we do. And it is such a rare privilege to be able to host these discussions, which bring together people from diverse perspectives so that we can all learn and grow together with an open mind. Please go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people. That's all one word, all lowercase, and donate whatever you can. Now on to today's show. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, the Supreme Court issued an order, an important voting right case in Alabama, and here to discuss it are two of America's leading voting rights experts who have positions on both sides of the case. Rick Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine and co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. His newest book comes out on March 8th, and we'll be discussing it here at the NCC. It's called Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics. Rick, welcome back to We the People. It's great to be with you. And Matthew Clark is executive director of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, the litigation arm of the Alabama Policy Institute. He submitted an amicus brief on the side of Alabama. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to this. Wonderful. Rick, let's just begin with the facts of the case, as they say. Why did the lower court hold that the Supreme Court's test in Thornburg v. Jingles requires the creation of a second majority minority voting district in Alabama? Sure. Well, it's complicated, as everything is with the Voting Rights Act. But let me just try and lay it out as simply as possible. In uh, 1982, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act to provide what uh, is commonly known as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a uh, requirement that when states or local jurisdictions anywhere in the country have voting rules, those rules have to assure that minority voters have the same opportunity as other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Now, that's pretty vague language. The Supreme Court first interpreted it, as you mentioned, in a 1986 case called Thornburg versus Jingles. And the court came up with, I guess I would call it a two-stage test. In stage one, uh, when it comes to a claim that uh, district lines for drawing legislative districts or congressional districts have to be redone after each census. And uh, the the claim would be uh, that a Jurisdiction is out of compliance with the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act if minority voters are large and compact enough, that is, they live geographically close enough, that you could actually draw a district in which they would have 
a chance to elect a representative of their choice, uh, and that white voters generally vote in a way that usually defeats the uh, choices of these minority voters. So this is the threshold three-part test in Jingles. If that test is met, there's a complicated totality of the circumstances test that occurs in the stage two. If there's a finding of liability, then the jurisdiction typically has to draw a district in which minority voters have an opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. In Alabama, in its congressional districting, although African-American voters make up about a quarter of the population of the state, they only have one congressional district out of, I believe it's seven. The uh, three-judge district court said, uh, we've looked at the composition of Alabama and we think it's possible to draw a second majority black district that would be reasonably compact. There's racially polarized voting in the state. So go ahead forthright and draw those districts. And what the Supreme Court did in its order uh, that just happened last week was the court said, no, don't draw those districts now. We're putting that order on hold and we're going to have a full hearing on whether or not this second district needs to be drawn. And I think that's likely to happen, not this term, but next term. So at least for this upcoming election, it seems pretty clear that it's going to happen under the lines as they were drawn by the Alabama legislature. And it might be for the following election in 2024, if the plaintiffs win, where new lines would have to be drawn. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Matthew, do you have anything to add to Rick's description of how the lower court applied Jingles and then tell us why you think that Jingles should be overruled? Sure. Uh, So first of all, I think Rick described um, the lower court proceedings and what Jingles requires pretty accurately. I don't have much to to add to that. Um, Maybe just in terms of some background information for how things have been working in in Alabama. Um, In 1992, uh, there, there was a, a challenge to how Alabama's congressional districts were, were drawn. And eventually the courts had to step in and say, okay, we're going to draw this for you because you can't get your stuff straight. And they drew a map that's actually pretty similar to the one that uh, Alabama just had after the 2020 census. It really has not changed much over the last 30 years. So when Alabama got its uh, 2020 census results back in, it made a few tweaks here and there to the congressional lines, but really nothing much on the macro level, just the little bit that's needed to reflect population growth. And then all of a sudden the ACLU came in and sued and said, look, we think under the Voting Rights Act, there need to be two um, majority black districts. And the the trial court agreed. Now, I, I agree with Rick that this did get complicated. Um, one thing that, that shows how complicated it is, is the, the lower court was comprised of a three-judge panel, um, one of them was appointed by President Clinton, and two of them were appointed by President Trump. So, look, I know people like Chief Justice Roberts say there are no liberal or conservative judges. They're just judges. But, you know, as, as a practical matter, come on, everybody can see that sometimes you get into ideological fights. But here you've got, uh, you know, one Democrat appointee, two Republican appointees that all kind of agreed saying, look, we think under governing Supreme Court precedent, it has to come out this way. So um, I'm not going to sit here and, and try to beat up the trial court and just say that this was a, you know, uh, a, a, a nakedly ideological decision. It, it certainly wasn't. Um, so when it went up to the Supreme Court, I, I spent a couple of days uh, looking at this case, trying to figure out whether we should jump in and, and, and try to help. And initially, I, I'm going to be honest, I had reservations because as I was looking at the trial court's order, I thought, you know, you know, it, it looks like they may have gotten this right. 
But the more I researched it, the more I came to conclude, you know what, I think the problem here is that Jingles does not comport with the text of the Voting Rights Act. So it's not necessarily that we can beat up on the trial court, but I think the Supreme Court has been getting it wrong for about 35 years, and we need to go back and uh, look at the fundamental problem. So um, our brief was really based on the arguments that Justice Clarence Thomas, who's you know the court's only black justice, has been making for about 35 years now, where he's compared uh, what Jingles held to the text of the Voting Rights Act and said, look, this does not line up at all. And by the way, uh, this has the unfortunate side effect of kind of reimposing some level of racial segregation. Um, and not only, you know, is that kind of what we've been trying to get away from, but it also hurts race relations because it, it doesn't require black voters and white voters to come together and try to find a candidate in common that can represent both of them. Instead, it it separates them out and, and you know, prevents building bridges. And then finally, just you know, it does not comport with the text of the law itself. For, so for all those reasons, we kind of thought, you know, Gingles is the problem here and the court needs to take another look at Gingles. So, th- so that was the essence of our brief. Thanks so much for that. Rick, Matt says that Gingles does not comport with the text of the Voting Rights Act and invoking an argument Justice Thomas made in 1994 said that it should be limited to uh, standards, practices, and procedures and shouldn't include vote dilution. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Well, I think it's a ridiculous argument, and it's a ridiculous argument because, uh, among other things, besides the fact that the, the text of uh, Section 2 is, is vague and leaves room for many interpretations, in 2006, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, and it added provisions to the Voting Rights Act that specifically addressed how courts should address redistricting. That is, you know, what the standard should be when applying Section 2 to redistricting. So if it were actually true as a matter of text that... Justice Thomas was right back in 1994 in Holder v. Hall when he said that the Voting Rights Act um, didn't, Section 2 didn't cover redistricting, there would have been no reason for Congress to have amended it. So I think that completely ends the argument. And so I was actually kind of shocked when last year, not only Justice Thomas, but Justice Gorsuch joining Justice Thomas made the same point without any reference to the 2006 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So even if you're a pure textualist, you don't want to look at any legislative history, number one, the text is ambiguous, but number two, Congress, it's not that Congress didn't act. We're not relying on the dog that didn't bark. We're relying on the actual text of Congress. Very clear that Congress intended Section 2 to apply to redistricting claims as indicated by the directions given to how to handle those redistricting claims uh, in the future. Matt, tell us more about your argument based on Justice Thomas's longstanding arguments that Jingles doesn't comply with the text of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the justices on the other side say that the legislative history of the act suggests that it was explicitly an attempt to ensure that uh, the Voting Rights Act applied to vote dilution claims. Congress was trying to resurrect the test uh, that uh, the Supreme Court had embraced in a case called White v. Register, which did apply to uh, vote dilution claims. So are, are you saying that we just shouldn't look at that legislative history and purely should construe the act based on its text to achieve a purpose that Congress may not have had? Um, well, I think, you know, the, this really gets into the argument of, you know, the, the textualist school of thought of statutory interpretation uh, versus, you know, I guess I'll just call it non-textualism. Um, if your listeners are listening to this podcast, my guess is that most people are, are pretty educated on those schools of thought. So I'll just briefly say uh, the textualist school of statutory interpretation uh, focuses on the words of the text. It says what the statute means is what the text says in its context. Um, and 
you know, Justice Scalia in particular was was very big on this. He went so far as to say that legislative history is never relevant because the law is meant to be read. Um, you know, if if an average person who's not a lawyer, who's who's not a politician, is trying to look up, you know, uh, the uh, a statute and and trying to figure out what it means, they'll look up the law, they'll they'll wrestle with what the words mean, and they'll try to make a decision on what to do based off of the words. And Scalia thought that it was really unfair to people to wind up uh, kind of being ambushed later by legislative history that was not in the text um, that, uh, you know, that people could not have reasonably been made aware of. So he, he went really far and said legislative history is completely irrelevant. I don't know if I would go completely that far. I'd say I'm about 90% on board with with Scalia. Um, and so for that reason, I would give, you know, much, much weight to the text and probably only consult legislative history if it's ambiguous. So with that backdrop in mind, um, the text of the Voting Rights Act, I'll just you know read it here since that's what everything turns on. Um, Section 2A of the Voting Rights Act says, no voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote based on account of race or color in contravention of the guarantees set forth and you know has some cross-references from there. Um, so Gingle zeroed in on the words, um, no voting practice or procedure. And, and based on the legislative history, like you, like you talked about, concluded that Congress intended for this to be construed very broadly, uh, to cover even, uh, the drawing of congressional districts. So Justice Thomas comes along in, uh, 1994 in, uh, in, in, a uh, in a separate writing, he looks at this and he says, hang on a minute. Look, if we're, if we're sticking with what the words say here, it's very, very hard to get the word standard practice or procedure to apply to um, uh, the drawing of congressional uh, congressional maps. He thought that was a really big stretch of the text um, and said, if there is any ambiguity here, the, the probably the better place to look to determine what it means is to look at what other words in the statute say, because context provides some some clarification. So based on the rest of what I just read, Tom's concluded, it looks to me like Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is meant to strike down anything that restricts minorities' access to the ballot box. And for the record, I mean, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if the states, you know, are trying to uh, impose things like we saw in Jim Crow, like literacy tests and the like that impede, um, you know, minority voters' rights to the access uh, access to the ballot box, then yes, that's not only a violation of the Voting Rights Act, but it's patently unconstitutional and, and should be struck down. Uh, but Thomas looked at this and he said, look, I think that is the scope of the statute. And if if we are, um, you know, if, if Congress meant to stretch it further than that to cover um, things like the drawing of congressional maps, that's what they should have said, but they didn't. This is what the the, the entire Congress settled on, and therefore that's what the law means. And looking at it, you know, I kind of tended to agree. So that's that's the basic reason why I think Gingles was wrongly decided. Rick, given the fact that you believe that Section 2 clearly applies to vote dilution claims, where did the Supreme Court go wrong, in your view, in the Alabama decision, and how should our listeners understand it? Right, so it's important to understand that the Supreme Court hasn't issued a final decision in Alabama. Right. So it's only issued a stay. And for the majority of the court, there was no explanation for why the court issued a stay. Um, we have a concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, we have um, a kind of cryptic vote from the chief justice um, 
and a brief explanation there and a dissent from Justice Kagan. So we're kind of reading tea leaves. Um, there are two problems, two main problems with uh, what the court did, in my view. Number one, the court applied something that I've termed the Purcell principle, which is this idea that a federal court should not make changes to voting rules in the period just before an election, because that can cause voter confusion uh, and election administrator confusion. The court, so far as I can tell, has never applied this doctrine in the redistricting context. There's not an imminent election. This is for a primary election. The election could have been postponed, as is a common practice when there is voting rights redistricting litigation. And so the idea that the court had to act now and put a stay and, and, and stop this before it could adjudicate this further uh, because of timing se seems to me to be quite suspect, you know, as someone who's deeply studied this question about uh, the Purcell principle and timing. And then on the merits, I thought Chief, what Chief Justice Roberts had to say was the most illuminating part of, of all that happened. Chief Justice Roberts said, look, uh, I've looked at what the lower court did and the lower court faithfully applied jingles. So I don't think that a stay is appropriate because the court is applying our precedents. But I agree with the five other conservative justices on the court that Jingles needs to be rethought, that we need to kind of rethink what the standard is for determining when there's a Section 2 violation. And so I'm going to vote to hear the case along with the other conservatives. So that's a big signal that major change could be coming and change that I think would make it harder for minority voters to be able to establish the right to have these districts drawn under Section 2. So there's a really big uh, potential holding coming, maybe not till a year from June, because the court moves very slowly, and it's probably not even going to hear this case until next fall, and then maybe not issue an opinion for many months later. Uh, but I, I think th the idea that there's going to be a rethinking of a standard that has done more to assure that we have adequate minority representation in Congress and, and state legislatures and local legislative bodies in places where minority voters did not have adequate representation in the past, that's very troubling to me. Matt, you also say in your brief that applying Section 2 to vote dilution claims violates the Constitution, requires the court to make political choices, and deepens racial divides. Tell us more about how it requires the court to make political choices and deepens racial divides. Sure. So as far as political decisions go, um, you know, Justice Thomas has pointed out that uh, as he was tracing how this, this interpretation of the law developed, there's really nothing either in the law itself or the Constitution that uh, specifies the way in which, uh, you know, this representation needs to be done other than the basic requirement of, you know, one person, one vote. And so one option the court had to wrestle with was, okay, in, in, in going down this line of reasoning, do we have to um, guarantee that minorities have meaningful access to vote for the candidate of their choice by doing single member districts or multi-member districts. And there's nothing really within the text of the law uh, or the constitution itself that answers that question. But the court decided on, on single member districts. And, you know, if there's nothing within the Voting Rights Act or uh, the constitution itself that requires that result, then that's necessarily a political choice, not a, um, not a legal choice. And so, that's the reason why Justice Thomas thought it uh, it made them engage in uh, political decisions. Um, I think to add to that, what one one thing that ha has made this more clear over the last few years is that the Supreme Court a few years ago held that it's it's not the role of the courts to strike down uh, congressional districts based on political gerrymandering. 
um, because that that is inherently a political question. So, you know, political gerrymandering obviously happens when the party that's in power comes in and draws lines in a way that's designed to help it keep power. And and, and I think, look, I'll, I'll concede this. I think we can all agree that sometimes you look at the way these the, these lines are drawn and, and you think, all right, the, 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 there's there's something that feels unfair about this. Um, heck, look, I grew up in Maryland. I was one of, you know, the few conservatives in my congressional district. And, you know, it was kind of sad knowing that when I went to the ballot box, my my vote for uh, president, my vote, vote for congressman, my vote for people at the state house probably didn't mean much because the Democrats had, you know, politically gerrymandered the state to help them keep power. Well, Alabama does the same thing when it comes to, you know, the Republicans politically gerrymandering to help them keep power. Um, but the court, the Supreme Court came along and said, look, the problem is if you get the courts into the business of, of trying to redraw, you know, what you've done, the, the, there, there aren't really fixed standards that help us do that. There, there's nothing that we can really deduce from the Constitution that helps us figure out where the line is. And so, look, the Constitution commits this matter to the state legislatures, and therefore we're going to let them make the decision. If you think they're being unfair, vote them out and demand that they do better. So in the same way here, look, it would be one thing if if you had proof that um, the the, the Alabama legislature drew these lines with the intent of of uh, trying to suppress the black vote. If you had that, then absolutely. That that is at the very least an equal protection violation, if if not a fifteenth amendment violation. But if the laws lines were drawn based on uh, you know politics instead of race, and and the record in this case indicates that it was, then trying to get the court to step in and redraw the lines is really more of a political decision than a uh, th- than a legal decision. So. Um, that's, that's what the Supreme court, you know, has, has been thinking over the last few years. And, and, and I think that's how that, that reasoning comes down in this case. Thanks so much for that. Rick, you suggested that, uh, the Supreme court may be open to reconsidering jingles based on chief justice Roberts's concurrence and might be open to the claim that jingles requires courts to make political, not legal choices. If the court were to reconsider jingles, what alternative might it embrace? One clue about what might happen that was uh, dropped in Chief Justice Roberts' brief dissenting and concurring opinion uh, in connection with the stay order was talking about this idea that we might require race-neutral districting principles to apply at the first stage of uh, the jingles analysis. And let me just unpack that because that's it's kind of an oxymoron and it's really hard to understand. So as I said earlier at the top, uh, the three-part threshold test under Jingles. The first question is, um, are minority voters uh, large enough in terms of population and uh, sufficiently compact? That is, they live close enough together that you could actually draw a single-member district, say a a single-member congressional district. And Alabama makes a kind of astounding claim that when you're deciding whether or not the groups are compact enough, you have to look at that in a race-neutral way, and you need to compare uh, all the kind of race-neutral plans and see if somehow magically a um, majority-minority district could be created. This kind of race-neutral districting, as Professor Stephanopoulos has argued, would lead to a diminution in the number of these districts. And Chief Justice Roberts, uh, I believe it was Chief Justice Roberts, cited to this law review article uh, that Professor Stephanopoulos co-authored that made this point, but he didn't cite to it as Stephanopoulos uh intended to criticize the standard, but to potentially embrace the standard. So what it would mean is that there would be many fewer 
claims under Section 2 where minority voters would be able to meet that first jingles factor. In other words, if you're going to say that a statute that was designed to be specifically race conscious requires race neutrality, of course you're going to end up neutralizing the statute. And it would be a perversion of the Voting Rights Act. You know, it's an argument that the Voting Rights Act is itself racist. It's just so absurd to me. I I can't even express in words uh, the kind of Humpty Dumpty world that we would be in if the court applied race neutrality to uh, the first prong of the jingles test. But that's, I think, where the court could well be going. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Matthew, tell us more about your claim that creating voting districts for the benefit of minorities increases rather than decreases racial divides, uh, since Congress, in enacting the law, believed that it was doing the opposite. Well, sure. And look, I have no, you know, I, I have no doubt that when Congress uh, enacted that, even if that's what it meant for, you know, the the statute to say, I, I do not dispute that they were uh, trying to achieve a, a noble goal. Um, but I think as we can all agree too, uh, noble intentions don't always lead to uh, good results. So, um, you know, Thomas, who get, he, if, if you know his story, um, if you go back to his confirmation hearings for the, the U.S. Supreme Court, when they brought out the Anita Hill allegations, he, he came back and responded and said, I think we all know what's going on here. We have the wrong black guy. Um, and because of that, he can't go forward and be on the court. So in the same way here, I think part of the problem here, when you necessarily require some level of segregation based on race for how you draw these congressional lines, it, it, it assumes that all minorities think alike. Um, now, now, to the Supreme Court's credit, in Gingles, they did try to add some nuance there. They, they did say you have to prove that this minority political group is cohesive. But there is an underlying assumption that if you're Black, you all want the same thing, you all think the same thing. And you know, because of that, um, we're we're going to step in and and just assume that all of you guys think alike. And so, you know, to Clarence Thomas, that that to him was very insulting. Thinking that you know, because I'm black, I have to be liberal, I have to vote Democrat, and if I think differently, I have to be opposed. And so, there, there are a lot of black conservative friends that I have that definitely share that sentiment, where you know they feel like. Um, but they, they feel like when people come in and tell them because of your race, you have to behave this way or you have to think this way or you have to vote this way for them, that comes across a lot more, um, you know, insulting than just, you know, being a uh, minority voter in a majority white district. Thomas also explains in, in his writings that th- there may be some virtue to instead of drawing lines based on um, based on race. Uh, if you have black voters and, and white voters in the same congressional district, then you force them to work together to try to come up with a candidate that represents both of them. Um, and I, I think I, I think there's something to that. That very very sadly, um, nowadays there there is this mindset that um, uh, you know if if you're you're, you're black you're going to vote Democrat, so Republicans don't even try to reach out to them, and, and that's a very sad thing. But if you keep them together in the same congressional district then you're, you're going to force them to reach out. You're going to, you know, they'll have to work together. And, and hopefully if they come together and work together, that'll help lessen racial tensions rather than increase it. The National Constitution Center relies on support from listeners like you to provide nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. Every dollar you give will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match Thanks to the John Templeton Foundation, visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people and thank you for educating yourself about the Constitution. That's constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people, all one word, all lowercase. 
Now, back to the show. Rick, tell us more about how, if the court requires race-neutral districting, it would, in your view, neuter uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and, and lead to a diminution of majority-minority districts. Uh, would, would any majority-minority districts be created in the future, and, and, and how would uh, voting rights in America change? Well, if I understand Alabama's argument, what they're saying is, you know, you have to look at everything besides race. So the traditional factors that are applied in drawing districts, things such as keeping city and state boundaries uh, together, if you can, um, protecting incumbents. Uh, And we know now, thanks to the Rucho case, which we've talked about in the past, the Supreme Court case from a few years ago about partisan gerrymandering, you can take partisanship into account. So you can do all of these things so long as uh, you don't look at race. And then if you do all of these things and you happen to be able to draw a majority minority district, then uh, you've met the first prong of jingles. And the reason I'm saying that that's wrong or perverse is the whole point is, let's go back to 1980. There was a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden. And it was a case where, and this is in Alabama, right? The, Mobile, Alabama has a, uh, I believe it was a city council. And it was about 40% African-American voters, 60% white, and they elected all five of those members at large. That is, everyone gets to vote for every member. And under that plan, it was an all-white city council because the white majority consistently voted, there's racially polarized voting, consistently voted so that um, the white majority defeated the choice of minority voters. And the claim in City of Mobile versus Bolden was a claim that was essentially a constitutional claim. And the Supreme Court said, you can't make a vote dilution claim under the 14th Amendment, under the Constitution, without proving racially discriminatory intent. And what Congress did in response to that was create Section 2. That is, its response, and this is another argument as to why the the, the textualist argument of of Justice Thomas and of, of your other guest is absurd. Uh, the whole point of why Section 2 was created was to deal with a case involving districting. Um, and so um, if what you had to do in Mobile was say, let's use traditional factors in drawing our five districts. And if it happens to create a majority minority district, well, then, OK, then we're possibly having a Voting Rights Act violation. It would mean many fewer situations where you would draw those districts. Now, there may be some places with very high concentrations of minority voters where these districts would be created. But According to the study uh, that I mentioned earlier by Professor Stephanopoulos, there would be many fewer of them, especially in the South. Because what do we know? You know, it'd be nice to live in a colorblind, race-neutral world. What do we know? Especially in Alabama, of all places, Alabama, we know that white voters and African-American voters prefer different candidates. And that if the white majority is able to have the ability to elect candidates of their choice, but African-American voters are not, we're going to have all white congressional delegations or we're going to have all white legislative bodies, except in those pockets where there's such a high concentration of minority voters that the only thing you can do is draw a majority-minority district. Matt, let me ask you about the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. You quote in your brief Justice Harlan's famous statement that the Constitution is colorblind and say that the framers of the 14th Amendment would have required colorblindness. But as the second Justice Harlan argued in voting rights cases in the 1960s, the framers of the 14th Amendment did not intend it to apply at all to political or voting rights. They thought it applied only to civil rights, not political rights. Given that, how do you reconcile that history with the claim that the 14th Amendment requires colorblind voting? 
Well, I think first of all, I, I you know I don't know if I would agree with the second Justice Harlan's um, belief about the the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, you know, even among originalists, probably the the single uh, most debated uh, amendment of the Constitution when it comes to original meaning is the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, the, you know, there, there are some who think that uh, the Privileges and Immunities Clause was meant to secure everybody's uh, God-given natural rights. There are others who think it was meant to secure, um, you know, only the positive rights that are, are listed in the Constitution. There are still others who think it meant to have a very, very narrow um, application to just eliminating the black codes that the South tried to pass uh, at the end of the Civil War. So th there is a lot of debate. So, you know, for Justice Harlan, um, I, I don't know if I would agree with his interpretation. Instead, the way I read the 14th Amendment, um, I, I think, you know, the the, the framers of, of that amendment, when, when you go back and you read the statements of, uh, you know, John Bingham and, and the others who who drafted it, they were really trying to take the the natural rights theory of our Declaration of Independence to its its logical conclusion. They really thought, as the Declaration says, all men are created equal. And because of that, when you read things like the Equal Protection Clause, you got to read that with that background in mind. So I think I think the Equal Protection Clause was meant to be a lot more powerful than uh, probably Justice Harlan thinks. So and, and again, there, there is room for debate on that. But you know, the, the the primary thing I think everybody agrees on is that when the Fourteenth Amendment was passed, Congress was at the very least trying to eliminate the black codes that were passed in the South. And that whole thing was based on racial segregation. So as the elder Justice Harlan said, our constitution is colorblind. We, we're, we're not gonna you know, separate our people based on, on race alone. Instead, we're all gonna, we're gonna presume they're all equal under God, under the law. And because of that, we're, we're not gonna come up with a system that treats people uh, differently uh, based on race, you know, uh, because that distinction doesn't make any sense. Rick, what do you make of the claim that the 14th Amendment was not intended to apply to political rights at all? It was only intended to apply to civil rights. That's a claim that was made not only by the second uh, Justice Harlan, but also by conservative scholars like Michael McConnell and by people who stood up during the debates over the 14th Amendment and said, don't worry, this isn't going to apply to political rights. It's only going to apply to civil rights. Are originalists um, being consistent when they say that the 14th Amendment requires colorblind voting? I think this is a pretty damning fact when it comes to originalism, right? So what I found, and we talked about this a few years ago uh, in connection with my book on Justice Scalia, The Justice of Contradictions, that um, originalists are uh, part-time originalists. They apply originalism uh, in, in some circumstances, but not in all circumstances. And, you know, in terms of the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, that doesn't seem to be what is driving this, you know, this, you know, for example, the claim of the colorblind constitution, that seems to be much more ideologically driven. Now, if these justices said, look, this is my ideology, this is what I'm doing, that would be fine. But they're hiding behind an argument that the constitution requires this because this was the original understanding of those who passed the 14th Amendment. And that's just empirically not true. Uh, but, you know, this is just one of a number of examples where the originalist argument is, is quite thin. Uh, it requires an understanding of history, and it requires doing history well. And whether we're talking about how the First Amendment might apply to campaign finance, or we're talking about the non-delegation doctrine, I mean, there's lots of different issues we could talk about where those so-called originalists either have a very thin understanding of history, or they ignore the history altogether, 
and go really along with their ideological priors. And I should say, it's not as though I believe that the liberal justices are less ideological than the conservative justices. It's just that the conservative justices, or at least some of them, hide behind uh, doctrines like originalism to try to mask their political preferences and make them sound like they are uh, you know, legally commanded from on high. Matthew, in the Supreme Court case, Justice Kagan noted that Alabama suggested that voting districts should be drawn in a race-neutral way using technology that didn't take race into account. Do you agree that if Jingles is overruled, Alabama should use race-neutral technology, or you just think that it's not required to try to draw new voting districts at all? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. I don't know. My my understanding is that the maps already were drawn uh, with race-neutral technology. Um, if, so the one one of the issues in this case is that the record was, I think, some seven thousand pages long. It was it was quite uh, quite detailed, and of course, the parties fought over you know the facts and exactly what happened. But from what I read, um, my understanding is that you know they drew the maps you know mainly based on their understanding of how you know which party the the people were were voting for. So is a political gerrymandering? Yes, but you know they they went and 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 drew the maps based on that. And then finally, once they had the maps in place, it was only then that they took a last minute look on race. And and that was only because they were trying to make sure they weren't going to run into problems under uh, jingles and, and other precedents like that. So, you know, my understanding is that they, they did try to draw the um, uh, congressional maps in a race neutral fashion. And I think they would continue to do that again if jingles is overruled. Rick, how big a deal would it be if the court says that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to vote dilution claims? You suggested that ever since the Mobile case in 1980 and even before that, both the court and Congress have assumed that there's uh, both the ability of Congress and in some cases the need to take race into account. If the court holds otherwise, um, how much would that change existing law? Well, first of all, it would be a kind of bait and switch. Because you may remember, and we've talked about this on the, on, on the podcast as well, in Shelby County versus Holder, a 2013 case, uh, the United States Supreme Court uh, essentially killed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That's a part of the Voting Rights Act that said that jurisdictions with a history of race discrimination and voting had to get approval from the federal government before they made changes in their voting laws and had to show that those changes would not make protected minority voters worse off. When the court decided that case, we were assured by the conservative justices on the court that, don't worry, there's section two. In fact, I remember this moment in the oral argument. It was either in Shelby County or it was in the earlier case, the Namudno case, where Justice Kenney said, well, why can't they just bring a section two case? You know, And then there was a whole discussion about if you could get an injunction under section two and you can get the courts to move quickly. And it was clear, you know, isn't this going to lead to some damage? But we were assured that section two would adequately protect minority voters. This is a kind of bait and switch. Section two is fine. No one's challenging section two. Now, all of a sudden, and it's not just Alabama or the amicus uh, that um, is represented on the other side here. Uh, It's also the state of Texas, which is arguing that the Voting Rights Act, if it has any teeth, is unconstitutional. Right. So there's a whole line of cases that say you cannot make race the predominant factor in drawing district lines. These cases go back to a 1993 case called Shaw versus Reno. The claim seems to be that race-conscious districting, as required by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is itself unconstitutional because it takes race too much into account. Now, the Supreme Court back in the 90s, in a case called Bush versus Vera, 
Uh, there seemed to be five justices that said, even if you make race the predominant factor in drawing district lines, if you're doing it because the Voting Rights Act requires it, then that's allowed. That's a compelling interest that would satisfy strict scrutiny. I don't know that there are, in fact, I, I, I'm skeptical that there are five justices who still believe that. And so what we could be heading towards is not necessarily the Supreme Court saying, we hereby overturn jingles or Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional because those would be really uh, major in-your-face precedents that would you know, galvanize public opinion against the Supreme Court. But we can see, as we've seen in lots of other contexts, the court killing something with a thousand cuts. So as the court did, and we talked about this in an earlier podcast this year, the Bernovich decision, where the Supreme Court read Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act outside the context of um, redistricting to apply to things like voter ID laws. We understood that provision as applying across the board in uh, cases where uh, these election rules make it harder for people to register and vote. And the Supreme Court in Brnovich didn't strike down Section 2 as applied in this context, but came up with a test that makes it very, very difficult to win these kinds of cases. And so I think we'll probably see the same thing, I hope I'm wrong, in this Alabama case when it is ultimately decided, probably about a a year from June or maybe a year from now, uh, that the court is going to read the jingles, redefine jingles or do something so that it's going to be much harder for minority voters to be able to elect representatives of their choice. And what's that going to mean? Legislatures and congressional delegations in a lot of places are going to look a lot whiter, and they're not going to look like what America looks like. Thanks so much for that. Matt, tell us why you think the court should overrule Jingles using the test for overruling precedent that it outlined in the Janus case. Sure. So as an initial matter, I, I got to say, um, I, I do agree with Justice Thomas that, you know, at the end of the day, the, the judiciary's duty when it comes to overruling precedent, the, I think the rule is pretty simple. If it is demonstrably erroneous in light of what the text of the Constitution or a statute says, then the court shouldn't follow a precedent. I really do think it uh, it should be that simple. Um, however, if we're going to go back to Janus, which does appear to be you know kind of the gold standard now that the court is using for um, overruling precedents, um, but then you know we made the case that uh, th- that you know Janus would favor overruling Ingalls. Here's some of the factors that Janice considered. First is how well reasoned it was, and so um, if you if you adopt the textualist school of statutory interpretation, then your primary problem with Gingles is going to be that it, uh, it it you know really took the legislative history and, and arguably cherry picked the legislative history to control what the statute says instead of going with the statute itself. So that alone is a factor uh, against. Uh, the quality of Gingle's reasoning. Uh, another test is workability. Um, the subsequent deci- decisions after Gingle's have shown that it's not very workable. There have been a number of decisions where the Supreme Court has applied Gingle's, and uh, you know, in, in some of the simpler cases, a lot of the times justices are are voting nine to zero or seven to two or something like that. So that's fine. But when you get into the harder application of Gingle's, the, the leading cases have all been very, very fractured. Uh, it's it's rare where you can actually get a five justice majority in cases like that to agree on anything. Instead, you have a plurality decision, you know, in section one that's joined by four justices and section two that's joined by three, section three that's joined by five and, and, and around and around it goes. So I think the Supreme Court's own subsequent interpretations of Jingles have shown that it is not very workable. Um, 
And then another factor that the court looks at under Janus uh, is is whether subsequent decisions in the law have eroded that precedent's underpinnings. Well, as I mentioned before, you know, a few years ago, the Supreme Court held that when it comes to political gerrymandering cases, that is not justiciable. The, the court simply can't uh, make that decision because it's a political decision and not a legal one. And as I've argued here, um, the problem, uh, as, as I see Jingles, is it requires the court amount it, to engage in a fair amount of political theory rather than uh, judicial adjudication. So, um, and under Janus, if, if those three factors are met, then it typically outweighs any uh, any reliance interest to the contrary. So, I don't know, ap- applying Janus to the case here, I think Janus would uh, favor overruling Gingles. Rick, Matt, and Justice Thomas have said that the court should clearly overturn Jingles based on the factors outlined in the Janus test. How many other justices do you think, in addition to Justice Thomas, might agree? And uh, why do you think that the court should not overturn Jingles using the factors in the Janus test? So this is a huge battle. I was just telling my uh, students in my statutory interpretation class that all of a sudden liberals have found a huge love for stare decisis and conservatives have become quite skeptical. And that's because there are a number of liberal precedents that are under threat right now. Right. So we're talking about this case, but of course, abortion and affirmative action are cases that are going to be decided soon as well. And, you know, I, I'd like to quote uh, my former boss, uh, Dean Urban Chemerinsky, uh, used to be at UC Irvine, now at UC Berkeley, who says that the justice view on stare decisis is, I believe in following precedent, except when I don't. And so I think that, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's the Janus test or some other test, uh, I would go back to what Chief Justice Roberts said about when precedent should be overruled in his concurring opinion in the 2010 Citizens United case, which overturned a couple of earlier campaign finance decisions on uh, corporate um, rights to spend money in elections, that they're balancing a number of factors, uh, both legal factors, such as whether people have relied upon uh, earlier precedent and, and how consistent it is with prior law, but also political factors. I think the court recognizes that it has uh, its political legitimacy on the line. Uh, During oral arguments in the Dobbs case, which is the the abortion case out of Mississippi, that the Supreme Court is deciding this term, Uh, Justice Sotomayor made uh, mention of a possible stench that would come from the Supreme Court deciding to overrule longstanding precedent there. I think there's a recognition that overturning precedent has a political cost which is one of the reasons why I think jingles won't be overturned, but it could be severely weakened because they're going to be overturning some other precedents. I expect Roe versus Wade is going to fall. So it's going to be already uh, the Supreme Court quite in the spotlight. I think if they take the hit on that, if they expand gun rights, as I expect that they're going to do, if they kill affirmative action in education, as I expect they're going to do, they're probably not going to want to take on the Voting Rights Act too. Thanks very much for that. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this important discussion. Uh, Matthew, please sum up for We the People listeners why you believe that the Jingles case should be overruled and the Supreme Court should not apply Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to vote dilution cases. Sure. So um, I guess there are two points to summarize my argument. Number one, the Constitution is colorblind. And so if it is colorblind, then it is fully appropriate for the courts to step in if you've got proof that uh, you know the states are... are intentionally discriminating against people uh, based on color. And and if that's what Alabama was doing here, then we certainly would not be supporting the state. But when the legislature is 
drawing congressional districts in a race neutral way, it's not fair to come in on the backside and say, okay, now we're going to make race the predominant factor, even though this is something that, you know, didn't even enter your mind as you were drawing these, uh, these maps, and we're going to redraw your lines based on race. Um, That seems to, to me to defeat uh, one of the major purposes uh, of the reconstruction amendments, which was to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Um, As far as uh, Gingles itself goes, my big problem with that is that it does not appear to comport with the text of the Voting Rights Act itself. The text focuses on stopping the states from impeding minorities' access to the ballot box. Um, But that is a different matter than how you draw congressional district lines. So um, again, my my rule is very simple. If a precedent does not comport with what the law actually says, that precedent should be overruled. And I think that's what's going on here. Thanks so much for that. Rick, please tell We the People listeners why you believe that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act should apply to vote dilution claims and the court should not overturn the Jingles test. Well, the whole point of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, as it was initially written, was to deal with the problem of racially polarized voting and white majority voters outvoting minority voters. We know that because Congress wrote the amended Section 2 in response to the city of Mobile versus Alabama case in in 1980. The court reaffirmed its belief that Jingles' right, and in fact, strengthened minority voting rights when it reaffirmed and uh, renewed parts of the Voting Rights Act in the 2006 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So I think as a matter of text, as a matter of history, as a matter of statutory interpretation, the Jingles test is correct. Whether uh, it was inevitable in 1986, I think not, but subsequent action by Congress has essentially ratified that test. And I think that test is a good one. It doesn't say that minority voters always get proportional representation. In fact, it's part of Section 2 that says there's no right to proportional representation, but it says in situations like in Alabama, where white voters consistently prefer different voters than minority voters, and those minority voters could easily have their choices outvoted by the white majority, it's important to have actual fair representation. Those voters should be able to elect representatives of their choice. And so what's at stake in this case is whether or not the Supreme Court is going to listen to what Congress has required or is going to apply its own values as to what it thinks politics should look like in this country in deciding whether or not to actually enforce the words of the Voting Rights Act as Congress wrote them and intended them. Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Matthew Clark, for a meaningful and engaged discussion about the important issues involving the future of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Rick, Matthew, thank you so much for joining Thank you. Thank you, guys. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Kevin Kloss, Ruben Aguirre, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, reviews, and subscribe to We The People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager to hear all sides of the crucially important constitutional debates at the center of American life. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We're in the middle of a crowdfunding campaign and are currently at 533 donations for a total of $74,000. If you value hearing people of different perspectives, which is so rare in American life, please donate any amount, $5, $10 or more 
to support We the People. It is urgently important that all of you continue to do exactly what you're doing, which is to educate yourself by listening to arguments on all sides of the constitutional issues at the center of American life. And that's what We the People is here for. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.